As we walk out the journey of life, we each begin to thirst for something more. We want more than just life the way we know it. It's a thirst for more peace, more fulfillment, more purpose. That was God's plan all along. Since the ancient times, he has made promises that he will quench that thirst. And the promises he made long ago are the same promises he has made for us today. All right. Uh, we are in Four Cups. This is the second weekend. Uh, it's a series based off uh, the four cups of Passover that were filled with wine. Did you guys get your free wine on the way in? No? Oh. So I'm drinking alone today. Um, uh, so we're in part two of a six-part series called Four Cups, and I tried to see how many numbers I could fit into that sentence. Um, so you may ask, why are there six parts to a series called Four Cups? I know I did, because I actually didn't know there were six parts until I heard Michael talking about the series. I just assumed four parts, four cups, right? Uh, so, so why would we do six parts to a series called Four Cups? Well, the series is largely based off of things that happen in the Passover, which is a Jewish holiday, a Jewish celebration, um, and sort of some of the symbolism and meaning behind it, and really some promises and, and prophecy that are sort of hidden within that feast, within that meal, uh, that were to foreshadow to tell of Jesus Christ and what he would do in this world. Uh, and since probably majority of you in this room don't celebrate Jewish holidays um, or know a lot about Jewish tradition, uh, we figured let's take a couple weeks and set this up and talk about some of the other elements outside of just those four cups so that you have sort of a background and a context to actually understand why this is important and, and what's going on. So last week, Michael did a great job kind of setting up the whole thing, introing the whole thing on, why should we even care about this? Like, why should we even care about God's promises? Um, and it was a great message. It's up on, on iTunes. It's on our website. You should go check it out. But it's, it's a great setup to this whole series. Today, I'm going to kind of jump into a little bit more of what is the Passover and, and why uh, there was symbolism there and what those things meant and, and some of the pieces outside of the cups. Um, so... Today, honestly, for me, is a little bit more of a teaching kind of mindset than probably my typical um, storytelling, uh, inappropriate jokes, and yelling. Um, those will come at other sermons, but probably not as much today. Um, if you missed that, go back and listen to almost any other sermon I've done, and you can find those things. Um, so I want to jump in. We're going to review a little bit just sort of the key things that Michael talked about last week. We're going to jump first to the passage that sets this whole series up, and that's Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. So if you have a Bible or a phone or whatever, just turn there. We'll read this. It says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so last week we hit this, and this is the basis of this whole series, is that in this text, God gives his people four I wills or four promises. And, and just to review, uh, the first one is I will bring you out. That God promises his people salvation. The second one is I will deliver you. Uh, and God promises deliverance. He promises that not only will they be uh, saved from Egypt, but like Michael said, that they'll get the Egypt, the Egypt out of them. That not only will location-wise they'll be different, but actually who they are and the way they act and the way they live 
will change as a result of God's deliverance. Then third is, I will redeem you. Uh, God promises restoration. And, and when studying for this sermon, I was reading over this, some of the book that we're reading through, Four Cups, and listening to some of the sermons from Chris Hodges, who originally kind of came up with a lot of this content. And one of the stats that I thought was interesting he threw out there was that um, statistically, this one about being redeemed, being restored to your original purpose, the intentions that God had for your life is probably the one we need to focus on the most. And we'll, we'll get there in a few weeks. But there was one study that showed that Christians, about 87% of them, aren't sure what their purpose is in life. I thought that was crazy. Um, the Bible would refer to this in different ways. Sometimes it would say that's our calling or our vision. Uh, Paul would say that, that the body of Christ, or, or sorry, the church is the body of Christ and that we're all different parts. I don't know if you can imagine if 80 87% of your body didn't know what it was supposed to be doing, right? Like that would be insane. Uh, you probably wouldn't be very functional or useful. Um, and, and so... 87% of Christians don't know what their purpose is. So in a few weeks, Michael is going to jump into that. I'm excited about that. That's the third promise in this passage. And then the fourth one is I will take you as my own people. Um, God promises fulfillment. And that'll be the last week in this series. So those are the promises. Um, but those weren't just for the Israelites. It wasn't just for the Old Testament. Those same promises on an eternal scale apply to all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. And so as we're going through this, this series, we're not just explaining something that happened in the Old Testament that we should know for fun or know, know for some context. We're, we're explaining it because those same promises run throughout all of Scripture, and they apply to us today as Christians, as believers. And if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here, and we're so glad that you get to hear these messages about what God wants to do in your life. And so you might ask, if you're like me, you're skeptical. So you may ask, how do I know that's true? How do I know that the promises given to a certain people group at a certain time also apply to me? Because to me, every time I hear a message from anyone, including Michael, including people I trust, if they say, here's this Old Testament passage, and it applies to you today, I immediately think, really? Are you sure? And, and honestly, with Michael, I know he's telling the truth because I know he's done his work and he's studied. But, but that's just where my mind goes because I've heard verses taken out of context. I've heard people preach whole messages off of verses that don't mean what they are saying they mean. And I get mad. Like I just get angry. I'm normally in the back. Like that's not what that means. You're, ah. There's verses that do mean that you could have used a different verse, but that verse doesn't mean that thing. And, um, so just setting this whole thing up, I thought, is there, is there a passage I could point to you guys? Because really we could go through all the scripture, all the old Testament, all the new Testament, and find these same four promises, these same four, I wills just to throw an example out. The promise of salvation. We could go to something like a verse you guys probably all know, John three sixteen, right? That whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Uh, that, that's salvation. That if we would put our hope in Jesus Christ, we would have salvation. But rather than go through a bunch of passages to illustrate this, I just found one passage that has all four of these in there. It's in the New Testament. It's from Paul. He's writing to the church. Uh, and, he's, and one of his uh, understudies, I guess you could say, Titus, uh, a pastor. And he says this, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11... Through verse 14, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So there's the first promise that the grace of, of Jesus, that that grace brings salvation. Second, in, in verse 12, it says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions that live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. That's deliverance. That once you have salvation, that then God begins to train you to get rid of the ungodliness. He begins to train you to be self-controlled. He begins to, to condition you to get rid of worldly passions. It, it's not, salvation was never meant to just stop there and, okay, now I've got my ticket to heaven and I can live however I want and do whatever I want. No, no, no. It, salvation is not just being saved 
out of a, out of a place or out of a location or out of a, a state of your heart, but it then changes your actions. It changes who you are and the way you live and the way you act. And so if you get saved, if you come to Christ five years from now, your life should look different than the day you got saved. And as a Christian, you continually mature, continually grow. It's not a one-time shot. I'm different than I was five years ago. And I know five years from now, I'll look back and be different than I am today. That's what the Christian life is like. Verse 13, it says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness. So there it is again, that third promise that he will redeem us, that he'll restore us to our original purpose. And then lastly, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And there's that, that last piece, that fulfillment, that we would be God's people, that he would be our God. And so that, that was just one passage, but I encourage you, study up on this. You can even just look these words up, like redeem, like deliverance, like salvation. You'll see these themes throughout scripture. It, is what's God, it was God's intention all along to save us, to redeem us, to deliver us, and, and, and to bring fulfillment to our lives. So today, I, w- I wanna set up kind of the backstory because starting next week for the next four weeks we'll jump into one of those promises one of those i wills and we'll get we'll get deep on what they mean and how they apply and how you live that out but today a little bit more backstory i want to talk a little bit about this question what is passover right some of you may have been around church your whole life and so i don't want to insult your intelligence you probably know what passover is you've probably read it maybe you even grew up in one of those churches that celebrated jewish holidays right and you sung like jehovah jireh and and you did the whole jewish thing Okay, nobody. Michael. Michael's it. Michael's the only one who did that. So uh, that's fine because here was my next point. I actually have this in my notes. One of the things I love about True Life is that there's lots of you who didn't grow up in church and don't have a church background. And maybe this is your first church and maybe this is even your first week at church and you didn't know you were coming to church. You thought there was an early showing of a movie. Um, Sorry. Uh, so, but, but you know what? I love that about our church. I remember last year talking to one of our small group leaders and I'll always plug small groups. If you're not in a small group, get in one. But, um, I was talking to one of our small group leaders last year and I remember her saying that what she loved about our church. Now she had grown up in church, but, but she said, I love true life because I feel like all the people in my small group and all the people I interact with at church, I just feel like they really need Jesus, right? And, and we laugh, we're like, everyone needs Jesus. We all need Jesus. She said, yeah, but it's so blatant that they need Jesus. Like, we're not, we're not sitting around just like dissecting verses and just like, you know, kind of picking apart little things. Like, they're asking basic questions. Like, why should I worship Jesus? And, and why should I follow the Bible's teachings on, I don't know, uh, the, drinking or sexuality or, or any number of other issues. Why should I do that? Well, okay, great. Like, it's obvious that we need Jesus. And I like that too. I love that. I love that there's lots of you who didn't grow up in church and this is your first experience because it's a good one, because we have a family here, because God's doing something awesome here. So I want to talk about this question. What is Passover? Uh, some of you may have heard of it. Some of you may not know anything about it. You may think, oh, isn't that what the Jews do instead of Easter? Um, well, let's talk about it a little bit. We have to go way way back. Uh, there was a guy named Joseph in the old Testament. How many of you guys were here a few months back when, when I had the chance to preach on Joseph in our running with a giant series. Any of you guys remember that? Okay. If you were here, uh, you'll remember if not, it's up online, but, um, Joseph, uh, had a rough life. He was, he was sold into slavery by his own brothers. Uh, he then worked for a guy whose wife then accused him of, of trying to have an affair with her, even though that wasn't true. The husband then threw him in jail again, so he's now in jail. He eventually ends up working for Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt. And through a series of events and God's favor on Joseph's life, Joseph rises sort of to the top 
uh, of the chain, the food chain. He, he becomes second in command in Egypt. He becomes what we would call a VP or a vice pharaoh. And, uh, and he rules the land and he makes a lot of good decisions. And they're going through a famine. And Joseph, by the wisdom of God, knows how to prepare for that. And he says, store food for this long and store it in this manner. And, and we'll sell only this much to this people. And, and so he sets up all of this. And what happens is his family, eventually they find out he's alive and he moves them to Egypt. And so now all of what we would call the Jews or the Israelites, they're now living in Egypt. At this point, they're just basically, they're basically like a giant family. They're not quite a, a nation yet, right? This is like, uh, I don't know if you guys know Kate Group, but it's probably about the size of her family growing up, like the Weber family, right? Um, if you don't, she comes from a family with nine brothers and sisters and, and blows my mind um, how her mom did that. But uh, that's, that's what the Israelites are at this point. They're just a big family. Um, the, the, the kind of granddad, he had 12 sons. They got married. They started having kids. Uh, and so they're just kind of a big extended family. Uh, and they're living in Egypt. Well, skip ahead 400 years. And over those 400 years, what starts happening is the Jews take very seriously God's command to be fruitful and multiply. Um, if you don't know what that term means, turn to your neighbor and ask them. It'll be awkward for the next few minutes. And um, so 400 years later, there's actually more Jews than Egyptians and the Pharaoh's getting nervous. He's thinking, this is a new Pharaoh, obviously, because the old one, 400 years, you know, he's, he's dead. And so there's a new Pharaoh, probably multiple new Pharaohs along the way. And they've forgotten that these people groups, they were actually friends and, and that the Jews and the Egyptians were good together. He gets nervous. They're going to try to overtake him. So he enslaves them. He begins to treat them as second-class citizens. And he begins to make them do all the manual labor, all the grunt work for the country. And so that's where we could kind of pick up the story is that Actually, at this point, Pharaoh is so nervous about the Jews that he puts a command out to the midwives, the people who help deliver babies. He says, I want you to kill all male Jews when they're born. As soon as they're born, if it's a male, kill it. Because he doesn't want any more Hebrew men in his nation. He doesn't want them to have the force, the power to overthrow him. Now, there's been no threat. There's been nothing here to indicate they were trying to do that. Um, but he's just that paranoid that he says, kill all of them. And if I could just kind of sidestep here for a minute, because this doesn't come up a lot, but anytime I see it in scripture, I feel like it needs mentioning is throughout scripture, the devil uses this same tactic over and over. So, so right about when God's going to do something awesome with the Hebrews within the nation of, of Egypt, right when that's about to happen, the enemy uses Pharaoh to start killing off babies, right? And when we see Jesus is going to be born later in the New Testament, Herod hears word that there's going to be a king born. And so what does he do? He has this plan, and he says, we need to kill all the male babies in this town. And if you read through the Old Testament, there was evil evil nations like the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. And when they would ransack and, and terrorize different cities and towns and countries, they would come in and they would kill the babies. And they would kill women who had babies in them, and it says that they would rip the babies out and kill them. And the Bible throughout all of scripture views that as evil, horrendous, and horrific. There's no, nowhere in the Bible that killing babies or fetuses is treated as okay. And so it's just something I'm passionate about because I have some children of my own. And I've seen some women that, that were going that route towards abortion and, and have turned around and had those babies. And I just get passionate when I think there is no biblical justification for anyone who's intellectually honest for a pro-choice stance. And so this is not what the message is about, but I'm throwing it out there because it's important. And because I see that the enemy uses this over and over in scripture. When God wants to do something awesome, he starts killing off babies. 
The enemy starts killing babies because he knows God has a plan and he's trying to do something. And so I look at our nation and I look at just the epidemic of abortion and I have to think God has some sort of plan because the enemy's rearing his ugly head with the same stupid plan he's been using for the past 5,000 years on this planet. And so... That's, that's not the message, but as I read this passage and as I thought, man, God was about to deliver his people and Pharaoh's killing babies. Like just from an outside perspective, I'm like, that seems so insane and stupid. But, but what are people going to look at our generation 30 years from now, 100 years from now for the babies that we've killed, for the babies we've sacrificed? And if you've been in that situation, there's forgiveness and there's mercy and there's grace just like any other sin. But it needs to end. It needs to stop. And so... We look and what happens is Pharaoh says, I actually want you to throw those babies in the Nile River. So Moses' parents, they have, they have a baby named Moses and they don't want to kill him because they're parents, they're humans. And they, they think that's a bad idea. And so they say, but we'll listen to Pharaoh. We will throw him in the Nile. What we'll do though is we'll build a basket that floats and then we'll throw the basket in the Nile. And the Nile just happens to go right by where all these women wash their clothes and bathe down the river and maybe someone will... Maybe someone will take him and raise him. And and they trusted that God had a plan. And so that's what they did. They put Moses in a basket. They put him in the river. Probably one of the scariest and most terrifying things for parents to do. But they trusted God had a plan. And what happens is Pharaoh's daughter happens to be in the river that day. Taking care of her business, whatever. And, um, And so she picks Moses up and she adopts him. And so now how crazy is this? Pharaoh wants all the male Hebrews dead. And now his own daughter is raising one in his house. So now he has an adopted Hebrew grandson. Like, I mean, just God, God is full of irony. Like when you read scripture, like God has a good sense of humor. I like, I like God. Like I would like to hang out with him. And, uh, I I feel like that would be fun. So he's like up there, like, oh, he's going to kill all the Hebrew babies. Wait a second. I'll get him to raise one. And, uh, he won't even know it. And so, so now his daughter is raising Moses uh, in, in, in the Egyptian household. And what happens is somewhere in his life, Moses finds out he's a Jew. We don't really get the backstory there, but he finds out that he's a Hebrew. One day he goes outside and he sees one of the Egyptians beating uh, one of the Hebrew slaves, right? Just beating, like the, the, the slave is going, to, is going to die. And so what does he do? He defends his, his, his fellow Jew and he goes and he beats the Egyptian to death. He loses his temper. He goes overboard. He kills the Egyptian, right? I mean, he's raised in the Pharaoh's house. He probably had some authority. He probably could have just said, hey, stop. Like, don't do that. Because he's, again, of the household of Pharaoh, who's the king of the nation. Um, But instead, he beats this guy to death. He then gets nervous because he thinks he's probably going to find out I'm a Jew now, right? Like, because there's going to be questions on why I killed an Egyptian. and, And so Moses flees the nation of Egypt. And he goes to Midian. He goes to the desert, and he becomes a shepherd, which seems... Pretty lame uh, after living in a palace of Pharaoh. And so he's in the desert. We talked a little bit about Moses uh, in our Running with a Giant series. But uh, he's in the desert and God shows up and talks to him in a burning bush, which is crazy. Um, I heard one pastor say, why do drugs when you can do scripture? Um, Moses, is, uh, Moses is talking to a burning bush and... Uh, and the bush is not being burnt down. It's just on fire, but it's not going anywhere, which doesn't happen, right? And so uh, God gives him a plan. He says, Moses, I want to use you to go back to Egypt and deliver all those people out of slavery. 
And Moses says, okay, no, Moses doesn't say, okay. Moses says, uh, I don't want to go. I don't speak well. I, 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 I stutter. Um, and, and he's like, don't send me. Like, don't send me, God. Uh, send anyone else, right? And literally, like, I just can't picture this. Like, there's been so many times in my life where I've prayed, God, just give me a sign. Like, if you could just, I mean, even a simple one. Like, if I could find a quarter on the ground, I know, you know, that's, st- like, just anything, right? I'll do this for sure. And then, and then. Typically, God doesn't. There's been a couple times in my life where I feel like God actually did kind of come through there. But most of the time, it's just no. Like, you need to pray and make a good decision. And uh, Moses has a bush talking to him audibly. And it's on fire. And he's like, no, I can't do this. I can't. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, God, like, I always tell God, like, if you would do that for me, I would have no problems. I don't care how crazy it is. If I go outside in the tree in my backyard, it's on fire talking to me. I'm doing whatever it says. Like, that's it. Um, I'm making sure that. Like all of our food has the right expiration date on it first, but then I'm doing whatever it says. Um, and so that, that's where Moses is at. Eventually he agrees to do what God wants him to do after some kind of negotiating, if you will. He's like, give me an assistant. And God's like, fine, your cousin can go with you. And, and, so, um, and so, uh, so Moses goes back to Egypt and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go, right? And at this point, like the Jews are pretty productive for the Egyptians. They're getting a lot done. Uh, and so just from a, um, I guess from a, a political standpoint, from someone who's ruling a nation, it doesn't make sense, right? And anytime, anytime that in history where slavery has ended in a country, obviously there's an economic effect and, and it doesn't make sense for the powers that are over those slaves, but it's the right thing to do for those people. Um, and so, so Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to. And Moses warns him. He's like, you know what? If you don't, there's going to be these plagues that come on your nation. And he's like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Whatever. Fine. Go ahead. So, so Moses goes through nine different plagues. Uh, each time he comes back, set him, set him free. Let him go. Sometimes Pharaoh will go as far as like, yeah, yeah, you can do it tomorrow. And then the next day comes and he's like, just kidding. And um, he had a, sort of a sense of humor too, I guess. I don't know. Uh, wasn't a good one, right? It always ended with killing people and, uh, and being a jerk. But um, so... He, 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 after nine plagues, he still hasn't let the people go. His heart is harder and harder each time one of these things happens. And uh, Moses just keeps coming back. And the last one, he says, you know what? This is the last plague, Pharaoh. If you don't let God's people go, God's going to come through. His wrath is going to move through your nation tonight. He's going to kill the firstborn of everyone in this nation. Every household's firstborn son will die, including your animals. Everybody will, will have this happen. And Pharaoh, with his hard heart, even though he has seen the, the, the Nile River turn to blood, even though he has seen locusts rain down and destroy crops, even though he's seen frogs come out of nowhere all over the nation and hail and, and just weird stuff, he says no. And, and historically, I was reading up on this, these plagues actually are in Egypt's history. Like, there's documents. Now, some of them don't tie back to the Jews, but these plagues are there, and people have tried to justify why these plagues happen in such a close proximity. Like, oh, there was a volcano like 10 miles away and it might've been da, da, da. Or, oh, you know, there was this weird thing happening in the world. But these plagues definitely happen. When, when people are trying to dismiss the Bible and come up with a better explanation and it sounds just as crazy as God did it, um, then you, you know something went on. Um, and so I was reading up on that last night and even, even the firstborn dying, there was like, I was reading up on what scientists think happened because it's actually in Egypt's history that this happened. And, and so they're saying, well, the firstborn, they got to sleep on the ground and, and, and the younger ones slept up high. So there was this gas that moved through from this nearby uh, 
thing. And I, I don't remember. I was reading it yesterday. Uh, and, and the gas would have been just low to the ground. So it would have killed everyone low to the ground. That's it. For, and I'm like, ah, like, I feel like that's really stretching it. Like, I feel like me saying God did it and you saying that there's gas from 10 miles away that spread and happened that all the older children slept on the ground. Like, really? After the locusts, after the hail, after the frogs, after the blood, after like all within like a short period of time. Like, okay. So anyway, um, so this happens. So, so God says he's going to do this. He says that he's going to kill all of them. And, and he does. The next day they wake up and they're all dead. And, and Pharaoh does let God's people go finally. Um, but what I want to focus on is that night before, the night before this happened, when Moses has told Pharaoh that all of this is going to happen and these people are going to die, he then has some further instructions for the Israelites, for the Hebrews. And he says, and you think, well, what are those instructions? Are they some kind of law, some kind of commands, some kind of do this, don't do this kind of thing? Uh, no, he told them to celebrate. He told them to have a feast the night before. And he said in that feast that they would kill a lamb they would take the blood of that lamb and put it on their, their door frame or their doorpost. And, and that as God's wrath, as his, uh, some would say, angel of death moved through the land of Egypt, when they saw the blood across the door, they knew this is a Hebrew family. And they passed over. The wrath of God passed over those people and spared them. And so that's where they get the term Passover. Um, what I think is interesting here is that in the midst of a really crazy situation, we've just had nine plagues fall on this nation. The Hebrews are still slaves. They're still day in, day out, building bricks and building structures and doing all this stuff. And, stuff. and uh, in the midst of that, God says, I want you to celebrate. He doesn't say, I want you to wait till you're delivered to celebrate. He says, right now, preemptively, I want you to throw a feast. And I was just thinking, can you imagine if we had faith in God enough that we were feasting and celebrating because of God giving us a promise? Not even seeing it fulfilled yet, but just because we trust God so much that we know if he said, I'm going to do this, he's going to do it. So let's celebrate. If there's nothing further to do, which in their case there wasn't, let's get on with the celebrating and trust that God's going to fulfill his end. Because God always fulfills his promises. And so I want to take a little bit more time. We're going to talk more about this feast. Here's the passage in Exodus chapter 12, where God tells them to continue this celebration. It says this in 12, 26 to 27. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. God was promising them freedom and preemptively told them to celebrate. And, and this is huge for us at True Life. We want to be, we strive to be a church that celebrates and that parties. Uh, our pastor and his wife actually came from a church called Celebration. So just give you a hint, they celebrate down there also. Um, it's kind of in their name and in their culture. And we've adapted that here. We, we've brought that here. Like we, at the beginning of this year, we met with all the leaders. And that was the one thing Michael said he wanted to do this year in our church. He said, I want to have a culture of celebration, of partying, of, of rejoicing. And, and I think we're doing that. I don't know if any of you guys have been to some of our life team parties that we had back at Christmas. Did anyone come to that? Right. Woo, yeah, I liked it. Um, uh, and, and we're having another one this summer and we're doing a church picnic. Like we want to celebrate, but it's not just the big things that we celebrate. It's the little things. Like every time we break an attendance record, that might seem silly. We have a cake though. We get a cake and we eat cake, uh, just because we're glad that more people are coming and hearing the gospel. Um, when we see small groups growing, we celebrate that we rejoice 
about that. When we see someone go through 401, if you've ever been to the 401, when you would complete that, what you'll have is, is pretty much our whole life team or a, a big portion of it behind you cheering, right? Like if you've been to 401, has anyone been there and heard us cheering for you? See a couple hands, right? And, and so we celebrate. We're excited that you're actually getting plugged in and going through that process. And every time someone gives their heart to Jesus Christ, we, we rejoice, right, church? We celebrate, yeah? I, I know I get excited. Like when I get an email from Michael or a text, like three people gave their heart to Jesus today. Or after Easter, it was like 11 people gave their heart to Jesus. That's exciting. Like we celebrate that. That's amazing. Now we don't see the end result. That person gets saved. There's probably a long journey ahead for them. There's probably a lot of things they got to go through. In the Hebrews, there was a lot that they still had to go through. It wasn't like the next day when they got out of Egypt, everything was easy. But they celebrated ahead of time. They said, we're going to celebrate before this journey even gets going. We're going to rejoice now because God's promised us this. And that's the culture that we want. Because the people of Christ, we should be the most just partying people that you can imagine. Because if nothing else, no matter what else is going on, we have the promise of eternal life that we'll spend forever with Jesus. And so no matter how hard your life is, no matter what you're going through, that's worth celebrating. That's worth getting excited about. But it doesn't just stop there in the Old Testament with this celebrating. Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And I want to take a look at a passage in Luke 22. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. All right, it says, Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. One thing I love about that verse, Jesus drank wine on earth and he indicates he's going to drink wine in heaven. Praise God. Uh, Verse 19, uh, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine. These are the four cups we're talking about. And he said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. This is actually the second time that Jesus referred to himself as bread and wine and told them that they would have to feast on him. Uh, The first time is in John chapter 6, and what happens then is a lot of other people that were following him left because they were like, this is confusing. You just told me to eat your flesh uh, and drink your blood. I'm out, right? And to be honest, like if I was following a teacher, preacher, whatever, and he said that, I would be out as well. I would be like, I don't, I don't know where you're going with this. I don't know if this is some kind of prophecy or hidden me. I don't, I don't know. I'm out. Uh, and so he loses a lot of his followers. And what's interesting in that passage back in John 6 is he turns to his disciples and he's like, are you guys going to leave too? Just the 12. And, and they don't really say that like they get it or they understand what he just said. Peter just says, where else would we go? Uh, you have the words of life. So nobody in the disciple group is like, oh, yeah, we totally understand what you meant. Like the, the, the bread, the flesh, you're going to get on the cross. And like, no, they don't get it. Like, and right here, I don't think they got it here either. Um, I don't think that as he's saying this, they're all like, yeah, we totally understand. I think, honestly, they're probably nodding their head like, okay, bread thing again. <laughs> Your blood is wine. Got it. And they're probably like whispering, like, does he remember what happened last time he said this stuff? Like, everyone peaced out. Um, but what I do imagine, you know, my, my, I grew up in um, hearing my dad preach a lot. And, and I love when he talked about this passage because he would say this, and, and it's the way I, I read it, is that they probably didn't get it then. But can you imagine the next time after Jesus went to the cross that they got together? Bread's a really common thing that you eat. Wine, 
is a really common thing that was drank, still is. Um, but can you imagine the next time they're together and, and they begin to tear some bread apart to hand it to each other? And one of them might say, hey, last time we did this, Jesus said this was his body. And they start to imagine him on the cross and his, and his flesh being ripped off. And, and they start to pour the wine in those cups. And they're like, yeah, and he said this was his blood poured out for us. And they, and they can just picture Jesus on the cross and blood pouring out. And, and they'd start to get it. Like they would start to get it at that point. Like we get why he said that. I don't think in the moment they got it, but in the days, the weeks, the months to come, they would have gotten this. They would have understood. And, and Jesus set this up, not so that it would be a once in a while thing, but so that it would happen all the time. He, he didn't do this so that we could just take communion a few times a year at church. This was supposed to be something we would remember frequently. That every time we eat bread, I don't care if it's bread or a donut or cake or any food that you have to rip apart, honestly. That, that as you eat that, you think, this is what Jesus did for me. He was torn apart from me. He was ripped apart from me. And as you pour drink, whether it's wine or juice or Kool-Aid or purple stuff, that you would think his blood was poured out for me. Like he wanted this to be on our minds frequently because it's that important, because it changes our life. The one thing that's not mentioned, the one thing that Jesus doesn't bring up that would have been the most important piece of the Passover meal was the Passover lamb. Right? Like they had to have that. That was the whole deal. Like they killed the lamb. They didn't, they didn't rub wine or bread or something on the doorpost. They rubbed the blood of a lamb on the doorpost. And that's why the wrath of God passed over. And he doesn't mention it. And the reason Jesus doesn't mention the Passover lamb in, in all of this setting up and symbolism that he's doing right now is because Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the Passover lamb. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. This word lamb occurs 104 times in scripture and it's the most frequently used term for Jesus. The last 25% of those lambs in the Bible are in the book of Revelation, all referring to Jesus. Words like the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. So I want to spend a little bit of time here near the end of our message today talking about the lamb, talking about why Jesus is our lamb. And it's not something temporary that we do every year. It's eternal. He did it once and for all. I want to talk about why he fulfills this. We can see John the Baptist even describing Jesus as the lamb in John 1 29. It says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so I want to talk about three aspects of the lamb that would have been important to Passover and are important today when we speak of Jesus Christ. The first aspect is that the lamb was perfect. And so if we can go to Exodus chapter 12, this is as they're setting up the Passover feast and God's giving instruction on what this lamb must be like. He says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. The lamb for Passover had to be perfect. And again, it was temporary. It was something that every year they would sacrifice a lamb. And when they sinned, they would sacrifice lambs and doves and all kinds of other things. Jesus is eternal. In his sacrifice. But, but Peter says this in, in chapter 1. Speaking of the blood of Christ. He says. For you know that it was not with perishable things. That's temporary things. Things that will fade away. Such as silver or gold. That you were redeemed. From the empty ways of life. Handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. God demands perfection, and we couldn't measure up to that. When you look at 
what happened in the Old Testament when they came out of Egypt, God began to set up laws and rules to make his people what he called holy. It was a term used to basically describe set apart, different than. Some people get hung up on it and they say, well, why was he so strict? And why did he care about what they wore and what they ate and who they married? And all? Because he wanted to make an example of them for the rest of the world to say, if you want to follow me, you have to be different. You have to be set apart. You can't just be like everyone else. And that's, that's no different today, honestly. Now, we, we can wear what clothes we want to wear, and there's very few restrictions on what we'll eat. I mean, really none, I guess, especially in America, other than we don't get drunk, right? Like, that's our only dietary restriction that I can think of. Um, but, but God demanded a perfect life, a holy life, a set-apart life. And part of that in the Old Testament was to show us that, you know what, that's actually impossible. He was setting it up. The Old Testament is a setup for Jesus Christ's coming. And so Jesus lived the perfect life. He obeyed all of God's commands. He was the only human to ever be tempted uh, with all sin and, and never actually fall into sin. He was perfect. And even, I, I think this is interesting, even when you look at other religions, they think Jesus was great. Like that's, that's the only religious figure like that, just so you know. Like when you speak to a Christian, we don't necessarily speak real highly of Muhammad or, or of Joseph Smith. Or of any of these guys who started false religions. We don't praise them or think they're great people. But when you take Jesus and present him to any other religion, they say, yeah, Jesus was great. He was awesome. One of my, one of my favorite things to talk about to, to Muslims in particular is that the Quran actually says that at the end of time when you're standing before God to be judged, do you know who it says will judge you? Jesus. How cool, right? Like, I, like hey, we have something in common. You think Jesus is going to judge you at the end of your life? I think Jesus is going to judge you at the end of your life. I would like to invite you to be on his team. Uh, it'll make that, that conversation a little bit easier. Like, oh, you're the judge. Yeah, I've been following you my whole life. Not, you're the judge. Yeah, I said you were a pretty good guy. Like, um, people in all religions honor Jesus. Gandhi, one of the most famous Hindus of our time, said that he loved Jesus. He said he wasn't fond of the church, but he thought Jesus was awesome. Jesus' reputation, Jesus' image is perfect. No one can tarnish it. No one can, no, no one can dispute it. No one can say, you know, oh, he had these faults or these sins. Or th Nobody does that. It's Jesus. He's perfect. He was the perfect lamb sacrificed for us. And we need that because all of us, and hopefully you already know this. I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but all of us are not perfect. We're, we're not without sin. We fall all the time. And if I'm honest, it's not just falling and stumbling. It's blatantly doing things that we know God hates. And it's blatantly doing things that we hate. I hope that's not just me. Uh, so we sin, we screw up. And Jesus did everything that we couldn't do. He was the perfect lamb. He was the one who could save us from wrath and from judgment by living a perfect life. But it didn't end there. It didn't end at just him living a good life, at him being this amazing role model, at him being the example that we needed, the inspiration we needed. It didn't end there. The second piece is that the lamb had to be sacrificed. Exodus twelve six says, Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Nothing to do with the movie, ladies, so just move on. Um, we must slaughter them. This is, part, this is the part we don't like talking about because it's not pretty. Like a lamb, up to this point, like a lamb is pretty. 
like we all saw lamb chop. We've seen other shows, movies with lambs. We're told to count sheep to fall asleep, right? And so like a lamb is fluffy and it's white and it's pure. And you make sweaters out of it and, and all. And it's, it's just this beautiful little creature. And, uh, but taking that creature and slaughtering it, killing it, it's blood coming out. It eventually being torn to pieces and cooked and put on a table for us to consume. That's not, that's kind of barbaric. It's kind of brutal. That's what they did with the lamb. And that's what happened with Jesus. And Isaiah 53, Isaiah prophesies that one day a Messiah would come and do this very thing for his people. And he's speaking of Jesus. He says, but he, that's Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. That means our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Sometimes we think, oh, by his, but by trying really hard, we'll be healed. No, by going to church, we'll be healed. No, but by just trying to live a life modeled after Jesus, we'll be healed. No, by Jesus's wounds, we're healed. By him being crushed, we're healed. By him going to the cross and sacrificing his life, we can be made whole. That's the only way that it could happen. He wasn't just the perfect lamb, but he was the sacrificed lamb for us. To not free us just from physical slavery, but to free us from an eternal bondage to sin and to Satan. Again, this isn't a pretty picture. It's the darkest day in humanity. I've said that before, but it's the darkest day in all of history is the day that we killed the son of God. The day that we slaughtered him, the day that we murdered him. And I say we because it wasn't a people group or a government or a nation that's responsible. It's our sin. It's our sin that caused Jesus to go to the cross. He was put through a rigged trial. He was beat. He was flogged. He was mocked. They knew he had declared to be king of the Jews, so they dressed him like a king. They put a crown of thorns deep into his skull. Scholars would say the blood wouldn't have flowed out from that so much as internally giving him a migraine that would be without comparison. They then would have, after beating and flogging him and basically tenderizing him, they would have laid him on a cross, driven stakes through his hands, tied ropes around his wrists so that the nails wouldn't pull out so he couldn't fall off the cross. They made him drag the cross through town while everyone's watching. He's so weak at this point that someone has to come alongside and help carry the cross because he can't continue on. They finally get him there. They then nail his feet into the cross and they raise him up and it's in a public place. There's an old song that's not totally accurate where we sing about a hill far away. This would have been a hill in the center of town. Most people say it would have been like hanging him up at the mall. And as you're walking in, you're walking past the market and all these different shops and you're seeing Jesus bleeding and dying on a cross. And on both sides of him are criminals who committed actual crimes. And they're naked and they're bleeding and they're, they're just desecrated. They're humiliated. And that's Jesus Christ. That's what he went through. And after he dies, after he says, Lord, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last breath. He's there and they're not quite sure. They say, we think he's dead, but let's just make sure because we don't want him. We don't want any second guessing. So they take a spear and they jab it through his side. And, and water and blood flows out because they've stabbed him in the heart. And, and water around the heart from best I could read is just a sign that the body's starting to decay already. It's not something that normally there would be a lot of water around your heart. And so he's dead. There's, there's no question that he's dead. And I know every time we get around Easter, we talk about this some, but, 
But other religions and other scholars have tried to come in and say, well, maybe he wasn't actually dead and that's how he got back up, right? Like there's just insane things like, oh, like one, one people would say, oh, maybe they switched the body out. No, his own mom was there and she knew it was him. Like your mom doesn't confuse you with anyone else. Some say, oh, he was swooned, meaning like he pretended to be dead. And this is the crazy part. Then he was wrapped in cloth. He was laid in a tomb. Three days later, because he wasn't really dead, he got up and took those cloths off. He somehow rolled a stone away, and then he went on and lived his life. As it, the Nails, 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 thorns, beating, spear, lay in a tomb for three days covered in heavy blankets. Get up move a boulder and walk on and live your life. That's insane. Like when your explanation of the supernatural is more insane than God doing it, you're crazy. So Jesus died. He was sacrificed. He was slaughtered for us. Why do we talk about this so often? Because it's the gospel. The gospel is that we're real bad and we need help. Part two, Jesus helps us. It's that simple. We need a savior. Jesus is the savior. And so he lived the perfect life we couldn't live. And he died the death that we deserved. And then there's one more part here. And and I'm excited to talk about this part. The lamb was shared. The lamb was perfect. The lamb was sacrificed. And then the lamb was shared. Exodus 12.4 says, If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. The lamb was never meant to be hoarded up and kept for yourself and put in Tupperware and pulled out for the next several days. It was meant to be used up that night. It was meant to be shared with everyone around. The apostle Paul says it this way about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5.18. He says, all this is from God who brought, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, sins against them, and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. I love this passage because it says that this whole idea of people being reconciled to God. Well, whose job is that? Oh, that's the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's Jesus. No, God gave that job to us to introduce Jesus to to the world. That we have the ministry of reconciliation. That we are ambassadors for God. So sometimes I, get, I hear people get hung up like, well, who are Christians to, to say what God thinks about people? And who are Christians to say God said this or says that? Oh, God. God's the one who gave us that authority. In scripture. He said, I want you to do that. I want you to be my ambassadors. I want you to go say the things that I've said. I want you to tell people the things that I've told you. Do it. I'm giving that to you. I'm not doing it. God's not in the ministry of reconciliation. He gave that to us. He gave that to us, that we're his ambassadors, delivering that message, delivering that hope to the world. We've been entrusted with the message of Christ. He chose us to do that. So we go forth and we share the lamb. We share Jesus Christ with everyone because unlike the lamb that the Hebrews would have had, theirs would have ran out, right? Like they shared with their nearest neighbor and that was probably it. Maybe two neighbors if they had just a beefy old lamb, right? Uh, but, uh, but most likely just their nearest neighbor. Um, Jesus never runs out. There's always more Jesus to share. There's always more lamb to share. So why do we want our church to grow? Why do we want it to get big? Why do we talk about that? Is it because Michael loves numbers? He's a math nerd? No, it's not the reason. It's because there's more lamb to share. 
Why do we care about our small groups getting bigger? Because there's more land to share. Why do we care about uh, reaching our community and getting out there and getting to know more people? Because there's more land to share. Why do we get excited when people go through life track? Because they find their purpose and they can share the lamb even better. Why do we care about church planning? You hear us talk about that some and you're like, what's church planning? This, this is church planning. That's what this is. Uh, there was no church in this movie theater three years ago. There's now a church in this movie theater. It's planted. It's growing. It's like a tree. Um, that's why we use that term planting because it grows. Uh, anyway, um, why do we care about that? Because there's more lamb to share. Do you guys know there's people in the world right now who've never heard of the lamb? They've never heard of Jesus Christ? That's why we care about overseas missions. That's why in the next year or so, you're going to see us start talking more about it. I'm really excited about this. Me and, me and the lead team, we've had some talks about it. That in the next year or so, when we pay off our, our uh, we, we pay back some money that we, were, we had from the ARC, the network that sent us out, we're actually going to be able to start to use some of those funds for overseas missions and some things around the world. And that's exciting because there's people that need the lamb. There's people that need Jesus Christ. There's people in our city that need Jesus Christ that either don't know or have a very foreign concept. There's people from other nations that live in our, our city that have probably come from a nation where they never heard of Jesus Christ. I've had some of them live in my house, I know. There's more lamb to share. So I, I wanna just hit three things as we wrap up. We hit these three before Easter, but I don't wanna leave them alone and just feel like, man, those were just for Easter and we can stop doing those now. How, how practically can we do this? How can we share the lamb? There's three things. The first one is that we can pray. And I just want to say, man, we need to be praying for our city. We need to be praying for this church, for the leaders here, for the people here, for the service, for the small groups, for all of it. We need to be praying for it. And, and let me show you how easy that is. Sometimes we say that and you think, man, I'm not good at praying. I don't, I don't like to get on my knees and spend an hour in prayer. And I'm with you. Like that can be difficult, right? If you do like that, you should meet Bonnie, right? Like, uh, anyway, um, so... You join the prayer ministry. But, but if you're like me, sometimes that can be awkward. And, and you know what? This is how easy it is. Maybe you're walking to your car and you think of church. You think, oh, I got to make sure I set my alarm to get up tomorrow for church, right? Maybe you think that or you should think that. Um, and so it crosses your mind and you just say, Lord, I, I just pray that tomorrow's service would go well and people would hear the gospel. Amen. That's, it's that easy because we believe God actually listens to prayers and does things based on those prayers. That he actually responds to our prayers. So you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to speak in King James and say, thou Lord, da, da, you know. Like, you can just say, God, I pray that people will get saved this week. Amen. God, I pray that the worship team would play really well this week. Amen. Lord, I just pray that you would just bring some new people out. Amen right? Like it's that easy. Like just pray, pray that God does something here and that he uses this church. The second thing that you can do to share the lamb, and this is huge and we should all be doing this is to invite, invite people. Like just tell people what you do on Sundays. Like, Hey, yeah, Sunday, I actually don't sleep in. I still get up and people will say, that's crazy. Why wouldn't you sleep in on Sunday? Because I go to this awesome place called true life and you invite them out. Everyone that you know should know that you go to church and that God's done something in your life. You don't have to freak them out. I mean, you probably will if you talk much about God, but they should know. I'll give you an example. At work, everyone that knows me at work knows about true life. Now, most of them haven't come, uh, but they know. They know what time our services is. They know where we meet. I talk about it all the time because it's huge because I want them to know the gospel. And I will take every chance I get to come back to that and talk about it. Uh, so recently somebody at work came up to me 
because they know, because I talk about this stuff, they're like, hey, uh, your church, I guess you're out of the busy season now, right? And I was like, the busy season? Like, what? what is the busy season? They're like, yeah, Easter's over. So busy season's over for you? And I'm like, I know how often you go to church, probably. Like, that's what I was thinking in my head, like, Christmas and Easter. I know you. Like, I have lots of friends like you, you know? So I, I let this person know, like, no, no, actually, like, we're pretty busy year-round because there's always people that need Jesus, right? Like, that's how it works. There's no busy season. There's no slow season. Oh, a lot, enough people have come to Jesus. We can, we can take a break for a while and just, uh, you know, watch movies here since we got this big screen. Like, no, like, there's no bit. And so, so people around me, they know, they know. That's opened some doors. Sometimes when people have been hurting or, or need something, they'll come to me. Hey, can you, can you pray for me? I had my neighbor knock on my door this or two weeks ago. And he was like, hey, you're a preacher, right? Like, no joke, this happened. He's like, you're a preacher, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, can you just pray that I find my cell phone? And I was like, sure, I can, right? Like, and then he was like, and can I borrow your cell phone right now? And I was like, sure, I'm going to come stand outside with you while I use my cell phone. It can be kind of tricky. And uh, so <laughs> it's because I talk about this stuff. It's because I share the lamb, right? And so if, if, if me praying that he finds a cell phone eventually leads him to coming to Jesus, then cool. And if I let him borrow my cell phone and I have to then wipe it off because I'm a little, I don't know, weirded out, uh, then then fine. And if he gets saved, great. I'll let my phone be dirty, right? I don't care. Um, so we need to pray. We need to invite people. And then the last thing is we need to participate or, or a word we use here. We need to serve here at church. We need to get involved. And if you're coming and you're just hanging out and you're just kind of filling a seat, if you're new, great. Keep doing that. Get comfortable here first and then start serving. I'll tell you, for me, when I came here, uh, I was a little burnt out on doing ministry. And I had said to my wife, I'm done. Like, I don't really want to do ministry anymore. I actually don't want to hear from God anymore because I feel like every time I hear from God, it gets messy and things go wrong and I'm just kind of sick of it. So let's just go to this church and sit in the back row and, and be done, right? And so um, that lasted very shortly, like really quickly that was over. And when I got here, Michael was like, I totally understand. I don't want you to do anything. Just, just relax, just get comfortable. He was lying. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. He, I think he meant it at the time with all of his heart. But very quickly, um, God just worked in my heart, worked in his heart, and I, and, I, and I jumped in and started serving and started participating. So if you're new, man, yeah, get familiar with us. But if you've been here a while and you're still just kind of hanging out, get involved, get through the life track, and get, get serving, get participating. We need that. It's the only way this church is going to grow. It's the only way that more lamb can be shared is that we have more people helping. So pray, invite, and get involved. So I want to pray for you guys. Um, so the worship team, you guys can come up. We'll wrap up here. All right, if everyone could just, just bow their heads, close your eyes. We do this every week because it's important, because it, it, it's monumental. It's the, it's the reason we do this whole service every week is to find out if there's someone who doesn't know the lamb yet and wants to today. So if that's you, if man, as I'm talking, you're, you're going, man, I don't really have that. I don't really have the lamb. I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I couldn't even share the lamb because I don't, I don't know him, right? Like if that's you and today you want that to be different, you want to know Jesus Christ. You want to have a relationship with him. If that's you, I just want you to put your hand up just for a minute. Just put your hand up in the air and say, you know what, Joel, that's me. I want to know Jesus today. All right, so what we're going to do 
Because every week we want to give you that chance. And, I, and, and honestly, it's just hard to see up here. So I don't know who raised their hand. We're going to pray this prayer. I want everyone to pray this with me and pray it loud. And say it, even for us who are believers, it's good to just remind ourselves and remind the Lord that we're committed to him. So just pray this with me. Dear Jesus, I repent. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Come into my heart. Make me clean. I want to serve you with all my life. And I declare that today you are Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to dive into your word. Lord, we thank you that you are the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That there was a plan set up. The moment that we sinned, the moment that we brought sin into this world and turned away from you, God, you had a plan. And his name was Jesus. God, and we thank you that you redeem us, that you give us salvation, that you deliver us, that you bring fulfillment to our life. Lord, I thank you, God. I thank you for fulfilling that need, Lord, and being our Passover lamb. That you were perfect and lived the perfect life we couldn't live. That you died the death that we should have died. Lord, and that you give us that ministry of reconciliation, that opportunity to share the lamb with this world. God, we're grateful for that. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for all you've done, Jesus. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.